Hello, everyone. This is Tony Skaggs, your host of Tapa Talks. And today I'm super happy to be speaking with Vanessa Corberubius, who is originally from Harlingen, Texas. She is currently in a fellowship at the Department of Health and Human Services in the Office of the First Lady, which, among many things, focuses on the Cancer Moonshot Initiative. She graduated from St. Mary's University with a Bachelor of Communication Arts. And before transitioning into healthcare, she was an accomplished educator and speech language pathology assistant. She received her Master of Physician Assistant Studies at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley. She's worked tirelessly to serve the Rio Grande community throughout the COVID pandemic. And it's important to note that the Rio Grande community was hit very hard by COVID. They had a rate of COVID deaths twice that of the rest of Texas. In addition to overseeing antibody infusion for over 13,000 patients, she founded and continually maintained a door-to-door vaccine awareness program serving the region's indigenous population. She's a community-recognized Texas healthcare hero, a daughter of educators, and a granddaughter of immigrant farm workers. Ultimately, she is driven to empower those who cannot speak for themselves. Vanessa, thanks a lot for joining us today. I'm very excited to speak with you. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me, Tony. You bet. Yeah. We're very interested in how you came to be where you are right now. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your PA journey? Sure. Um, as you stated, I graduated from University of Texas, River Grand Valley, and I began my PA career in the emergency department, and that's when COVID hit. My ER group left probably October 2020, and at that point, I told my parents, but I think I was convincing myself, I said, and I'm going to go to the COVID hospital because no matter where I work, I'm going to be around COVID patients. It was a wonderful experience to be at the alternative care site in El Paso, Texas. And once I arrived, they trained me to infuse patients with a monoclonal antibody. This was very new. And then I was just there for about two weeks and they said, we're transferring you. And me being ready to see the world, they actually said, we're sending you back home <laughs> because my area was hit so hard. But I think it was a blessing to go back home so that we could have something to help us. I always tell people the data at the start of the pandemic, the Valley is about 1.4 million people. In comparison, San Antonio is about 1.45. But my Valley, at the start of the pandemic, we only had about 500 and change hospital beds. We also only had 242 ventilators. That's a big health disparity compared to other areas that are about our, our size, number one. But number two, we are also one of the unhealthiest regions in the United States. So this monoclonal antibody came in. I infused so many patients because the more patients I infused, the less that went to the ER, the less took over the ICUs because it was really helping stop the virus, halt the virus in this process. I did that with the state initially, but as surges went down, they left. Uh, And my business partner, he's Dr. Michael Muniz, he's a pharmacist. He called me and said, we have a outbreak again. We got to go. And I To be quite honest, I was like, I don't want to go because at the end of the day, I was the provider and it fell on me, but he convinced me to start doing infusions. And that summer, summer 2021, um, we worked 12 weeks straight, 19 hour days. My phone would start ringing at 7 a.m. and we'd be infusing patients until 2 a.m. in their home. Because another part of my valley is they're very healthy literate, number one, and number two, they're also a very poor region. So some didn't have rides, some are bedridden and Again, the more people I infused, hopefully the less went into the hospitals. And we saw that it really did help. And that just kept going on. And COVID became my jam. That's not what I thought my career would turn into. But I have to give credit to my county, Cameron County. All the CEOs got together and they gave us their monoclonals when I first started. And they saw the difference. So they always supported us. I will say in July 2021, when my business partner and I did it, there actually wasn't anything set up to get paid. So we serviced a lot of patients for free until 
the CEO of Valley Baptist, Manny Vellis, told the county, hey, do you know what these guys are doing? But you've got to do what you got to do, right? And we're in the middle of the pandemic. We had to do what we had to do and help our community as much as we could. I grew up in the Valley. I've known of these disparities. But once it slaps you in the face every day, it's, I would complain to anybody and everybody that would listen to me. And I complained one afternoon to a gentleman who was getting a COVID PCR test. And he said, have you ever thought about applying to the White House Fellows Program, the fellowship? And I said, nope, I've never heard of it. Let me look it up. I had a week to apply. It's about six essays, a proposal to the president. And in all in all, it's like a six month process, about 20 interviews. And when they would interview me, they would say, why do you want to do this? And I would tell them because at one point, my patient load was 13 patients a week. And then it increased to over 200. I asked you guys for 200 meds and I got sent 20. At that point, I had to decide what patient got it first. Yes, we went by science, but I needed that door. I needed to open that door from provider to federal government to say, hey, we're here. Give me a phone number. Don't give me an email that I don't know if you're going to answer or not. Because we're the ones that are, you know, have looking at these patients straight in the face. And so I was one of 15 chosen. There's about six of us from meds in medical field somehow, some way out of 4,000 applicants. And I'm very proud to be here to represent Texas and to represent our healthcare system. But more importantly, I'm proud to represent physician assistants. I'm actually the first physician assistant to be recognized for my work. And I just think this just boggles my mind because we've been around about the same time as this fellowship. And I feel like PAs do a lot of work to never recognize. So I always tell people this is more than just me. This is not about me. This is about promoting the physician assistants and promoting the work that they do day in and day out. And as you mentioned, you're the first PA in this fellowship. And what year did it start? It just began at the end of August and it goes until September. And what it is, it's just my concentration, as you mentioned, is Department of Health and Human Services, an office of the First Lady, Cancer Moonshot. So I help support the policy team and um, anything they may be working on. This fellowship was originally established, you said, in, I believe you said 1964, about the same time the PA program started. I think it is, yes. Yeah. And how many providers are in the fellowship? We're about six. There's a dentist, ER doc, neurosurgeon, neurologist, myself. So I think it's five. I might be missing one. And and you're the first PA, which is super impressive, that's ever been in this fellowship. So that's fantastic. As far as the fellowship, are there any exciting or interesting stories you're willing to share about what's going on right now in the fellowship? The fellowship has really helped me as a provider heal after COVID. I wasn't like some of my colleagues that are probably listening to this who was in ICU and saw them. But in the beginning, the monoclonal antibody had five things that you had to qualify in order to receive this treatment. And one of them was good standing oxygen saturation. When we were initially set up with the state, they were like 90 and above. And I thought, okay, let's do 90 above. But what I kept seeing and seeing so many patients, because when I got started, they said, Vanessa, don't worry, there's a clinic in Austin and they've only seen hundred patients over three months. And I really thought I'm going to sit back and relax and get paid really good. <laughs> that didn't happen. I saw over a thousand patients in 48 days and I could pick up on trends and pick up on commonalities. And one of them was, I just kept saying they have nothing else. So when that would happen and their oxygen was below 90, at times I would prone them, I would percuss them, I would do anything and everything does it go up to 90. But sometimes my health illiterate area, people would walk in oxygen, oxygen saturation in the 60s. So at that point, I had to send them to the hospital knowing that they weren't going to come up. And this fellowship has helped me work through that PTSD. I met with Dr. Fauci. 
I call him my BFF because <laughs> I met with him one-on-one and he said, what can I do for you? And I said, I don't want you to do anything for me. I really just want you to listen, listen to my story, listen to what I encountered, listen to what the providers see on a day-to-day basis. And he couldn't believe that I, number one, he wanted to know how I had access to the monoclonals. And I said, by the grace of God and why I did it. And I told him about how that's all we had. That's all we had was the monoclonal antibodies, because at the time there weren't even vaccines, they were just rolling out. And then, you know, I spoke with Dr. Jaw, I've spoken with FDA to tell them where is that line? Do you have that open hotline that they can call you provider and say, Hey, this is working. Hey, this is what I'm seeing with this med. Can we change it in real time? And they actually do. They actually have that in the cancer um, realm. And I hope that they extend that in other areas. And you see that the tangible things you see is being able to increase access to to care for those individuals that you worked with in the Rio Grande Valley and and so forth, correct? Correct. But you know, the Rio Grande Valley, uh, you know, we're special in that we are, we have our own qualities, but I imagine there's a lot of other pockets in the United States that have these same things, right? These same obstacles and disparities that PAs deal with all the time. As I told you earlier in a different conversation, my heroes are PAs that are in the PCP world. That is, uh, you know, I, and my purpose in doing this was to bring to the table the obstacles that they see on a daily basis. And if I can speak of that and speak up for the PA profession, then let's go. What work, where can we help? You know, what can I help with? That really speaks to me because, I, and again, in our, in our previous conversation, we, we discussed how this profession, which started about the same time the fellowship that you're in right now started, was originally uh, designed, developed to improve access to those individuals in rural medicine, those most marginalized and so forth. I, I think one of the things that really inspires me about your story is that I'm kind of seeing that. that if it means a lot to me, I hope it means a lot to others too. So so uh, kind of on that note, you even mentioned that a big part of who you are is the uh, ability to give back. Uh, could you tell me kind of what that means to you? The way that I give back is through communication. I was going to be a sports reporter. That was going to be my life. And then um, I learned about the PA profession and it was like perfect for me. It's true story. I see how so the two my, are very similar. Vanessa. You know, but, and, and I questioned it for years because, you know, going through PA school, I'm like, why couldn't I have had a faster track? Like, why, why am I not like this 20 some year old straight out of college went into PA school and, you know, and I could have made so much more money, you know, thinking all these things, but my communications background was essential during COVID because when I walked into the infusion center, I know how to read my audience. I always say I speak English, Spanish, and Valley. And I told my supervising doc and the people at the state level, I said, listen, I know it's COVID, but I've got to go into each of these clinics. I've got to step foot. I've got to look at these providers in the face and say, hey, I'm not a marketer. I'm a provider. I will be taking care of your patients. This is the criteria. This is the referral. If you have any questions, here's my cell phone. You know how many people across the state of Texas have my cell phone number? But it was about access to care, right? And I kept telling him, this isn't about you or me. If you want me to take a verbal, I don't care what you want me to do. Call me and I will help your patient. If if I need to go to them, let me know. So my communications background was so essential during that to be able to read my audience, to accommodate to them and the patient. And so I think that that's the way I give back. And that's what I'm doing now in my fellowship. I'm communicating to... Francis Collins, head of NIH for years. This is what we saw. This is what we endured. This is how people have to go out of their way 
to drop off medications for their patients, to drop off oxygen concentrators. We did that too, you know, and I wanted to just shine light on PAs in general and let people know we'd be lost without them. If you were to give advice to other PAs, what advice might you give them as far as like how to focus on giving back? You know, I think PAs have a really good grasp of how to give back, but I think sometimes we just got to do what we got to do. But one thing I think we need to do as a whole is we need to give back to ourselves and we need to start advocating for our profession. I tell HHS, I say, you know, hey, I'm going to get on my soapbox. What are you doing for PAs? And they just laugh at me because they know that I, I try to swing it in every chance I get. But I think we need to really look at our profession as a whole. Why aren't we equivalent to other professions that are considered the same thing as us, but a different track? Yeah, for our own place in, the, in, in healthcare, really. Uh, you know, you're really speaking to me when you say that, because it's something that I've kind of championed for quite a while now, not as long as I should, because I think it's a trade of the profession. Get into practice, put your head down. Everything just kind of happens around you. And very rarely do they look up and realize that the world is changing around them, sometimes not to their benefit, right? Kind of what you're saying is that nurse practitioners and doctors, they have amazing lobbying organizations and so forth that we don't have. And I know back when, for example, like the recent changes in healthcare, a lot of that documentation lacked any thought towards what the PA might need, you know? And I think mm-hmm. you're exactly, I think what you're saying is dead on that we, we need to advocate for ourselves, you know, because in the long run, that does benefit the patient, doesn't it? Right. Yeah, it does have and an, you uh, and I have spoken this about, about this before, but I also think we need to give back to those that are learning to become PAs. I think yeah. that let's go back and be educators. There's right. no better educator than a PA themselves to educate another one. I think we need to help up and coming PAs by molding them into being the best provider they can. I continuously give back to UTRDV. So many students, whether they be pre-PA, PA, about to take their boards, they can have my phone number and call me. And the, I had a colleague say, why do you want to help them? They should have it as hard as I did. And I'm like, because one day they might treat me. And right. I don't care if they had it as hard as I did. I want them to know their stuff. <laughs> so right. I think that's where we need to go. Sure. And also, you know, a, a PA precepted you, right? A PA precepted me. So that's just part of giving back. And it may not extend all the way to teaching a class or something like that, though, but just interacting with like you mentioned, pre-PA, student PA. And one thing about that, though, and I know you you can appreciate this, too. When you talk to somebody who wants to be a PA, you know, a young, a young person wants to be a PA, man, their eyes light up. You know, and again, this needs to come from a place of humility, but they really look up to us. And we need to bridge that gap. We really do. Yeah. I, I'm passionate about what you're saying. I totally agree. So uh, how do you think your time, both dealing with the COVID pandemic and also your time in the fellowship, how do, you, how do you think that's going to impact your future as a, as a PA? Uh, I think it'll impact my future as a PA because it's funny, when I was going through PA school and going through my clinical rotations, at the end of it in my capstone, one of the docs said, what do, what's, what do you want to do? And I love ER, but I said, I just, I love ER, but I don't know. I just haven't found my niche. And I think I found it with public health. Um, I'm, I think I'm really good at looking at big picture and figuring out where the gaps are and trying to fill those gaps and advocating for those who don't have a voice. So it might, whether it be the patient, whether it be my colleagues and figuring out how do we make things easier? Because access to care is my number one priority. But at the same time, I think being the PA, I'm not just on the patient side, the PA who's also cognizant of the 
things that my colleagues have to go through and how can we fix that and make it easier for them? Because, you know, I know I have friends who they work so hard every day and luckily it's our passion and we don't feel it as work. I know that's been different, you know, from, I love my fellowship, but I've had to learn how not to be around a patient. It's very disorienting because I would see patients every day. And then all of a sudden it's, I feel like I'm in first year PA school and (laughs) having to relearn everything. And it's funny, luckily the people that work with me, they're very gracious in teaching me just how to write. They have their own writing style. So it's kind of, imagine it's kind of learning how to create your own medical chart. You know, it's going back to that square one, but I think everything has a purpose. So whatever I can take from here to the next thing, that'd be fine. I have two roles, never say never. And just let God plan because I used to make plans and I didn't plan to be here. So (laughs) I don't make plans. (laughs) So what is the next thing? I don't know. Luckily, we're just four months into this. If it behooves my community to stay in DC, I might stay a little while longer, but my heart's in the Valley. I went to school in the Valley to be a provider in the Valley to treat those patients. My mom always said, you don't have to go to a third world country. We have it in our own backyard and she's not wrong. Um, I know one time I went and abused a patient and he was in a very small RV, one room, had a little AC hooked up, had a water hose going through the roof to give him water for a shower. And that's just the reality of where I come from. And so if it means going back and being their voice, then so be it. But we'll see. If there was a, let's say we have a PA that's listening or maybe a future PA listening who kind of wanted to follow your path, whether it be uh, where you're in, where you're practicing right now or the fellowship, what advice would you give them? What I've learned is that and it might be PAs and it might be people from my area, but I think what's helped me in this to become a fellow was my work in COVID. But I also think that it's about how do we portray the work we do to a bigger audience? I say women do this a lot, but I think PAs can fit into the same circle. We just do what we got to do. There's no kind of recording it. When I was applying to this fellowship, I had to go back and say, okay, how many patients have I serviced? Oh my God, it's over 13,000, you know, (laughs) but it's just like, those are my stats. Imagine a PA who's been a PA for years and imagine their stories. I'm not any different than the PAs, the colleagues I work with and those coming up. What I do see is that sometimes people recognize that and they tell their story very well and as well as create a nonprofit for something. If there's something you're doing continuously, you might want to create a nonprofit to help yourself and to help your community. In the Valley, it's funny because I don't know if I can do that because community service is just, it's something we do every day. It's something um, that's embedded in our everyday activity and everyday interaction to our community because you'll have a patient come in who doesn't have a coat. So I would go buy them a coat. So if I've created a nonprofit for everything I did, that would kind of be funny. I'd have a lot of them, but maybe I should find one. (laughs) But I think that the biggest advice is learn to tell your story. If you want to go and do work like I'm doing now, tell your story and as well as create a nonprofit for something you really deeply care about. And as far as applying for the fellowship, I think I probably know your answer, but you're thinking that's something that other PAs should definitely pursue. Absolutely. We need more voices for this profession. We need to shine light on the work that they are doing and bring the movie screen in front of the people who make policy and decisions. That's what I try to do. When I'm talking to them, I try to talk about my patients. I try to put them in the moment. When I spoke to the FDA and I said, thank you for having that hotline, because let me tell you what, the nightmares I have of my COVID patients are the old 
Hispanic men who were sitting in my chairs, deciding, and I couldn't give it to them. And there were times where I'm not going to lie. I would tell my staff, just walk out of the door. Let me do what I got to do. And they were like, no, because <laughs> you know, it was so new in COVID. But I just kept saying to myself, they have nothing else. They have nothing else. This is their last ditch effort to live. And my staff, thank, thank God they were there, right? In one aspect. But the other aspect, those are the men that I dream about. And I bring tears to my eyes sometimes still. It seems like a crazy busy. Do you ever get any time that isn't focused on on healthcare and the fellowship? Do you have off time? And if so, what do you what do you like to do? Um, I like to show my family the city. They know I have a year here, so they're taking turns to coming up to DC. I love to meet people, and I asked the director of my fellowship to please put me in an area where I can meet the most people. Because in the valley, yes, we have health disparities and healthcare. You know that we need help with. We're under resourced and underserved. But I told them I need to be in an area where. If next year there's a problem in agriculture, I need to know somebody in the Department of Ag. If there's a problem in education, I need to know somebody in education. And thankfully, I've, I'm checking off that list. I know also you mentioned that you were doing the monoclonal antibodies and you transitioned to vaccine also, right? And again, this may be something I kind of misunderstand. You were doing a lot of monoclonals, but they, they weren't giving you very many. Were you having to seek out monoclonal antibodies from other sources or anything like that? So what happened was the monoclonal antibody came in the state first 2020, they gave it out to all the hospitals, but you couldn't right. infuse patients in the hospital. So all the CEOs got together and said, we're going to give it to the state center. And so that's where we received it. My business partner, Michael, he's the pharmacist. He was in charge of the monoclonal. So he, he always had access to the monoclonal. Right. Now, he, although that was the med, I was the provider who had the experience in it. So the state would send it to us, but some, for some reason, at one point, the state didn't recognize us. Something happened as a, the monoclonal center, even though at that point we became the Cameron County Infusion Center. Honestly, the story about the monoclonal is, so Regeneron, probably in July, 2021, they were allowing us to go ahead and administer it subcutaneously. You had four injections. Now, I did maybe 60 patients and it, it said, it's not working. We went back to the science and sure enough, by the time it goes to the adipose tissue to where it really needs to be to work, it was a decreasing like 50%. So it wasn't working very well. So at that point I stopped doing it, but my colleagues did it more, especially in states that didn't want to get vaccinated. Because at the time, if you got the monoclonal, you had to wait 90 days to get vaccinated. So a lot of people would say, oh, I was exposed just because I didn't want to get vaccinated. And so I kept screaming at the top of the hill, hey guys, I'm worried about two things, allocation and resistance. And both things happen. Allocation, 70% of the meds, everybody went through it in one week. And then resistance happened later on. And so that's when the federal government had to take it back and say, okay, we really can't just give it to y'all. Yeah, we're going to have to take it back and have to distribute it on our own. And that's, you know, the rest of the story. Everybody thinks that the feds want to get involved. You know, that's what was the word on the street. And I'm like, no, this is the rest of the story. Now the vaccine happened was because in between surges, I didn't have work. I spent probably the month of May on the couch because I was so exhausted. I worked 112 days straight for 12 and a half hour shifts, my first surge. In May, the FQHC in my home area called me and said, hey, we need help with our vaccines. So I went over there and I created a door-to-door program. And I also created a clinic that was opened almost 24 seven every day so that people could come in and get vaccinated. That was May, 2021. And the Biden administration came out with a door to door in July, 2021. So we were ahead of the game, but you got to understand that the Rio Grande Valley didn't have anything else. That was a small part compared to my friends at the County because 
the Cameron County, they um, are the ones that actually our county is 99% vaccine rate right now. I remember when the vaccine numbers were coming out, nobody was 99%. So pre-COVID, your emergency room provider, right? Probably, I'm guessing like a smaller emergency room in Cameron County, correct? And then- It was uh, attached to a hospital. Gotcha. Okay. And uh, COVID happened. And I've heard you say a few times, it sounds like you stood up your own business in response to this, right? And is is that the infusion center that you stood up? And that was strictly in response to the COVID situation. And you, it was you and a pharmacist partnering to do that, right? Strictly, yep. Okay. Luckily, my uh, supervising doc, I said, hey, I need to do this. And he was very supportive. Wow. And so from there, you did you pretty much step away from the ER completely? Or were you? you, Oh, uh, I did. Yeah, the infusions took over. I was vaccinating. But that's when the Delta variant hit. So I had yeah. to stop vaccinating. I had to go right full foot force it back into, um, I would call it COVID land. Um, right. <laughs> and so, so again, uh, probably what uh, March 2020 was when everything started with the COVID. And uh, and then how shortly after that did you step away from the, the emergency department? I started December 2020 because I, I was gotcha. in the ER until October 2020. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, and mm-hmm. essentially you mentioned Delta. Delta changed the landscape a little bit. So, well, a lot. Omicron changed the landscape. So all those different variants kind of did different stuff. And of course, now you, and you started the the fellowship in August uh, 2022. So, wow. It's an amazing story. It really is. Thank so. you. Yeah, and, and you know, I thank God for my colleagues in the Rio Grande Valley. Like, they trusted me with their patients. And we really worked together to try to get as many patients infused. And we would send out notices. As you said, every variant changed. Every variant changed the patient presentation. And we had to get that information out quickly. I mean, we would send faxes. We would send emails. I would call them. I would text them so that they would be abreast of what was going on. Because Delta, the game changer was the Anglo population was hit hit hard. And that was like, whoa, it was kind of jarring because at I'm I'm mostly Hispanic population. When I saw it hit the Anglos, I'm like, oh my goodness, here it comes. And then Omicron, I, I could see that it, we, we infused 119 patients in one day. And that's when I saw the clinical presentation change. And I was in touch with our Cameron County Health Authority, Dr. James Castillo. And I said, listen, doctor, I haven't seen the presentation change. As soon as it does, we're stopping. You know, because I'm not going to infuse you just because I think you should get it. That's another thing that's so important as a PA, that communications part. I'll tell you what, this is a story that I tell over here a lot. We practiced in a state that didn't want to get vaccinated. And we practiced in a state that it was really hard for me as I was in the middle of a COVID war. And my friends and family that I had supported their small business, supported their careers. And here I am in this war and they're telling me, oh, it's not that big of a deal. And I'm looking at them like, I'm in a twilight zone. What do you mean it's not a big of a deal? Do you want me to tell you what I'm seeing in my clinic? You know? And I had to sit and say, Vanessa, if you keep badgering them, they're going to tune you out even more. What can we do? So I would take selfies. Day 50, COVID infusion center. Day 112, so that they could know that it's still going on, right? And the way that I would tell my COVID patients, you need to get vaccinated. Because some of them, quite honestly, I thought they were going to spit in my face. Because they were upset when I would say, hey, vaccines. And my spiel was, hey, I've infused, at that point, over 10,000 COVID patients. The vaccine companies do not pay me to tell you to get vaccinated, but I've seen all these patients. And if you have the vaccine, you're better off. With that being said, I wouldn't vaccinate with the Johnson Johnson because it just doesn't work. Now, I didn't say in PA terminology, right? I just said it didn't work because I have a third grade reading level. So we got to know our patients. We got to meet them. And when they looked at me, I thought I said, I'm not loyal to any vaccine. I'm not loyal to any monoclonal. If it doesn't work, I'm not going to do it. 
period. And I'm going to tell you if, as you're my family or friends. And they appreciated that transparency and just wanted to know, well, what works, what doesn't. So you mentioned a couple of times a day to just being somebody who works in education. Have you thought about publishing anything on this? I have it. I need to talk to somebody about doing that. With the data we did was vaccines, when, what vaccine they got. Everybody's COVID was funneling into me. So literally, if it was Delta, I would be like, wait a minute, why are you so sick? Why are you deciding you have a vaccine? So I'd go back to the chart of Johnson & Johnson two months ago. And so I told my business partner, I'd be like, Mike, it's not working. He goes, let me look at this one. And sure enough, like we would just follow the data. Like that's how we survived. That's how I knew who to infuse, who not to infuse, who was first. At the line, you know, dialysis patients, they were number one all the time because they just did not do well with COVID. The other thing was when we were at the COVID hospital, everybody was on an anticoagulant. They were there for months, but they survived. And that's because everybody's uh, COVID patients in El Paso were funneling to the alternative care center. I remember being in the ER at the very beginning and the D-dimers were up and up. And I would tell Doc, I would say, Doc, what do we do? I said, aspirin doesn't work the same as an anticoagulant. He goes, well, that's all we have. Partnering up with the pharmacist was amazing because those guys, I love pharmacists. And I said, Mike, I need an anticoagulant. It can't be a real anticoagulant because it's like 500 bucks. How am I going to justify giving all these patients anticoagulant medications, right? Number one, I didn't. I never even ordered for anybody because I was just infusing. I was infusing other PAs and providers' patients. And so he said, I think I know something. It's called natokinase, and it's a natural anticoagulant. Japanese use it a lot. It decreases the D-dimer in four hours. So mm. in July 2021, when I had a patient come in with respiration rate at 50, and I know that they're going to sit on that ambulance for four hours, here's an adokinase. You know, here's one little pill so that I know that you won't have a PE on the truck. And later on, when I met with the CEOs of the hospital, they're like, oh, my God. I'm like, yeah, because we already had a lot of light shone, shine on the, the Rio Grande Valley for being underserved and under-resourced. We didn't need any more national news <laughs> stories on us. Honestly, I'm so I'm very impressed. You saved lives. That's amazing. Thank you. I mean, so do you. I'm just doing <laughs> what we all do. And way, way indirectly if I do so, but I appreciate it. Thank you. Anything that you would like to add or any other things you want to say to the, the listeners that you think is essential, important or anything like that? I just want to thank Tapa and thank you, Tony, for making this happen. I think it's important that we support one another and that we get more involved. And that includes me because I will say I disappeared during the first few years, just exactly how you said. Um, I was so inundated with how to become a provider, how to learn how to become a provider and learn quick. And then I was, in, I feel like I lost two years in COVID land. <laughs> so now coming out, I'm trying to help and talk to anybody and everybody about our profession, where we can move the needle and where we can help to make our jobs a little bit easier. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks again for joining us, Vanessa. And thanks to everyone for listening to Tapa Talk. Join us each month as we take a look at the professional lives of those that focus on improving the health of all Texans. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you'd like more information about the Texas Academy of PAs, be sure to visit us online at tapa.org. See you next time.